everyone. <laughs> you guys, you came to the most exciting, the most invigorating, the most challenging panel at Third Coast. And before we get started, I would like all the pitchers to stand up because I want you guys to have a look at what bravery and <laughs> what, what bravery looks like. Can pitchers stand yes. up. Let's give them a round of applause. They're all coming up here. So um, this is Air's Bitchin' Pitchin' panel. If you have, has anyone been to this panel before? So we know what to expect. It is basically, we're gonna hear pitches from these amazing pitchers to our panelists here. They are on a very strict time limit to yes. really get their points across. They've been working with myself and Jeanette. What's Jeanette? Yeah. Hey! Uh, we've been um, working with, with, with everyone to help them really refine these ideas and present them to this incredible panel. And I am going to have the panelists introduce themselves and let us know where they're from. My name is Robert Smith. I'm one of the hosts of Planet Money. And I should say that uh, at one point I was the official editor. And now we make editorial decisions as, as a group and we consider most pitches in, a, in one of our weekly meetings where we talk about it, come up with ideas, and, and give our responses. And we want more pitches. Hey, I'm Catherine St. Louis. I'm the senior editor of podcasting at Nian Hum Media. We're an LA-based podcast house, uh, production house. And, but I'm actually in Brooklyn, so I work out of my living room. Uh, but I focus on doing editing shows that are limited-run podcasts. So things like The Thing About Pam, Larger Than Life from the LA Times, This Land from Crooked Media. So you'll notice that all of those are... Uh, companies that come to us and hire us to make a podcast. But we're very interested in the humans, the independent humans, who have independent ideas that are surprising and wonderful. And so that's why I want to hear from you guys on some limited run podcasts that should be, we should be thinking about greenlighting. Hi, my name is Mike Inscott. I'm the host of The Pulse at WHYY, which is a health and science show. I'm also the executive producer, and I edit most of the stories, so it's a lot. Before that, I was a reporter, and before I was a reporter, I was a producer. So I've sort of, you know, done the full circle of public radio things. I've worked with lots of people in this room and look forward to working with a lot more of you. Yes. <laughs> and go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Annie, do you want us to make an announcement? Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Annie Russell. I'm AIR's project editor, so I'm available to our members uh, for editorial support on, you know, projects big and small um, and sort of any kind of questions people have around specific things they're working on. And when we hosted our pre-pitch webinar, we had a lot of questions. I mean, we anticipate we'll have more questions today around our members and other folks in the community who are interested in working on their own projects and not necessarily pitching to a specific show or network. Um, so we want to announce today 
that early in 2020, we're going to be launching a new sort of initiative to help folks do that around providing some micro grants for people who are interested in starting podcasts and also um, editorial support for where people are in that process. So look for that announcement um, and enjoy the pitch panel. So thank you for coming. Cool. Okay, so before we get started, I want to ask each panelist here, what is one word that would describe what you're looking for in a pitch today? Brief. <laughs> for me, it's uh, surprising. And to that, I will add access. A lot of times, it's how are you going to do the story, and who are the people, and are they willing to talk to you? Okay. Uh, Those yeah. are some things. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? That's good. We can leave now. Yes, let's do it. Um, I, I'm very, very excited um, to announce our very first pitcher. We're going to go right down the line. First pitching to Robert Smith will be Natasha Ruck. Natasha, come up to the mic. Natasha uses storytelling to deepen understanding and foster action. Yes. Showing Natasha some love. Um, her work has earned her an Emmy. Yes, she is a professor of multimedia storytelling at the University of San Francisco and the showrunner for Adonde Media's Duolingo French podcast. So Natasha is pitching this story and working with Beth Hoffman, who's not here right now, but um, Beth has covered food and agriculture for 20 years and teaches audio production at University of San Francisco. And Natasha is going to pitch us now. Hi, um, my pronouns are she, her. And um, this is Betting the Farm. In this 20-minute episode of uh, Planet Money, hopefully, uh, we start in a San Francisco love story, and we end up on a cattle farm in Iowa, wrestling with how to make a living while feeding America. Uh, in 2007, Beth, who's going to be our narrator for the piece, was studying journalism and food equity with Michael Pollan in Berkeley. She was 39 years old, and she met a cute neighbor, John, our main character, uh, he's a butcher at Whole Foods. From the moment Bess started dating John, he told her that his lifelong goal was to take over his family 540-acre farm in Iowa. And so 19 years later, uh, in 2019, uh, Beth took a leave of absence from her uh, fully benefited job, which is actually 12 years later, uh, uh, at San Francisco University. They sold their smart car and to Iowa to take over the farm from John's 87-year-old father, Leroy. As experts in food, and uh, John now about to become a fifth-generation farmer on the land, they drive into, well, the sunrise, uh, and uh, ready to become enlightened uh, cattle farmers. I just walk around them, huh? All right, never usually all this close to you guys. Girls. You've talked about what the surprise was here is what? It was, it was a lot more stressful than I thought it would be. Yes, but it's what's a, different? Uh, it's a different kind of stress. It's a, <laughs> it's a slow stress. Slow and steady as yeah. opposed to shit I'm late. Yeah. Stress. It turns out uh, they have to make a lot of tough decisions over the one year of uh, taking over the farm and uh, how to raise livestock sustainably, uh, what to feed them, what equipment to buy, and how much debt they're willing to go into. 
Um, they uh, discussed this quite at length with Leroy. Um, but the big surprise for them and for our listeners is not that farming was hard work. It's that farmers don't actually make money. Even in uh, years not plagued by trade wars, 3 a.m. Trump tweets, and intense weather events. And that means that if the couple cannot make enough money on the farm to justify it as a full-time job, they're going to have to leave Iowa and leave the farm. Farming, it turns out, is a bit of a pyramid scheme. Um, you're trapped in a system that controls what you buy and sell and makes decisions for you, and you end up sometimes losing your house. According to the USDA data, the vast majority, around 80% of farms, do not make any money. And in the cattle, cattle industry in particular, four firms control 80% of all beef. But the thing is, uh, smaller farms growing a variety of products is better for nutrition, better for food security as a nation, and better for rural communities. And it is increasingly what consumers want. But the food industry is heading the opposite direction, with a vengeance. What does it mean for us as people if we cannot keep farmers on the land? Uh, through the story and sounds of the couple raising and selling their cattle and talking with Leroy, farmers and bankers, uh, we will see the bigger system and the bigger agricultural system, how it fits in our uh, lives and explore what can be done about it. Excellent. So, so you're proposing, just so I know, you're proposing that Beth be a reporter on the story. Yeah, she's uh, um, 20, 20 years of journalism in the food industry, on the radio and in print, and yes, she is. And it would be a first-person sort of thing. First-person, but uh, her husband and their relationship are part of, of uh, like, he, he's a bigger character in it because he has more at stake than she does. And has she been collecting tape this whole time? Yes, or? she has. Okay. Um, and what, what is the current step? I mean, how big is this farm? Uh, 540 acres. 540 acres. So it's like the medium of, of farms. They're pretty much like, that's what farms are. They're pretty small. And they're in their 50s, which is what farmers are right now. 50s. And, um, and they're currently trying to make a go of it? Is that? They are currently trying to make a go of it. They've given themselves three years. Um, and how far in? They're six months in. They've uh, had their first uh, cow was born. They've raised the first cow, and now they're trying to decide, is it going to go into the feedlot? And these cows have been raised with really advanced uh, uh, rotational grazing. But now they're trying to figure out what to do with them, and is there a market for their cows? Do they have any other offers? Has someone tried to buy the farm or buy the cows? Um, no. Um, so... Yes, what's the alternative? What happens if, if this does not work out? So the, the big four can buy their, their outfit and take it over. So if, if this doesn't work for them, um, they may have lost. Uh, they, so they're basically giving up a San Francisco lifestyle with a house that they own. They're currently selling their San Francisco house to uh, basically fund their farming uh, adventure. And uh, they're basically trapped in a system in which the cows will have to be sold to, every year there's going to be a new crop of cows that have to be sold in the feedlot. Uh, and they're trying to find alternatives to that. But their cows are going to go into the system. Most likely they're going to make the decision in the next probably uh, months of what to do with the first cows. Um, and and, and then the they'll have to I'm do... I'm sorry, what are the options there? Uh, well, 
really, they don't really have that many options, but uh, the main one, if they want to make money with it, because it's about making money, um, is to sell the cows to a feedlot. So they've, they've been grazed rotationally, meaning every day they move the area in which the cows um, eat so that it's better for the earth and better for the cows. Um, so that you can renew the, um, the growing of the grass. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, they're going to be sold to a feedlot, so they're going to be put into pens, and they're going to be uh, shot up with antibiotics, and they're going to be fed corn and basically enter into the food system that we have. That is not the one we desire, but that is the only one that is available for farmers who want to be uh, farmers on the land right now. But they're hopeful to find different outlets, more direct outlets. The, um, the things I like about this pitch are, first of all, brief, very good. Um, and and I, I, do, I do like stories about agriculture because it is sort of the way to best visualize a lot of economics, right? Because we, we're familiar with it. Uh, you're essentially talking about products. It is commodities and hedging and all that sort of stuff. But it's not, uh, it's not theoretical. So, so that part is good. And uh, I like that she's been gathering tape, and the cows sound adorable. Um, I like that they're also f uh, older and sort of reflect they're not the 20-somethings who are trying to start farming and discovering that, hey, i got to get up early, and it's really hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I do, like, those stories make me laugh so much. <laughs> the classic, like, well, we gave up after six months. Um, the... The the part that gives me pause the parts that give me pause are uh, it feels like it comes from a very particular point of view about uh, the way agriculture should be, and uh, that's that's made a little bit worse by the sort of selling the San Francisco home and selling the smart car. Mm -hmm. Like it, it feels it feels a little uh, a little naive and ideological. Although although you say that the husband came from a so it's, that's the thing. They are food experts. They are people who work. Well, I know uh, they're city on, food experts, but the husband worked he, on the farm. He, he, he grew up on the farm. His father uh, ran the farm. Uh, his grandfather ran the farm. His great-grandfather ran the farm. And so he's a fifth-generation farmer. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he's been in food all his life, in all of the distribution, working at Whole Foods, and, and kind of understanding all the elements of it. And... Uh, Leroy, who's 87 years old, very spry, uh, is uh, basically the whole time telling them what to do, what kind of equipment to be there. So there's, there's a wealth of experience here that is over several generations. So the father's still alive? Yes, very much so, and okay. very opinionated of what tractor they should get and uh, how much time they're wasting by Oof. trying to be, um, you know, sustainable. Yeah, so, so the, the thing that sort of, that, that I think could make this work uh, is some sort of conflict, and having the father alive is good. Do they disagree about what should be done about the farm? So he wanted them to buy $500,000 worth of John Deere equipment, and right now they are doing the San Francisco thing, uh, which is they're trying to find uh, second-hand equipment. They're trying to get uh, refurbished material instead of buying a brand-new $500,000 uh, piece of a hay baler. Uh, Which does it much quicker and, and with less labor. That's, that's not necessarily. Not that. necessarily. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily. It, they're still buying a machine. And is there and and so, is there a sense in this story about um, idealists having to compromise their vision? Is that what this feedlot thing is? 
Um, so the, the, what's happening right now with the cows is definitely that. This is an idealist um, having to, to um, uh, compromise their vision. But this is really not about idealism. This is about the system in which we live and how uh, when you have people who make decisions that are only based on the short-term interest of will I not have to sell the farm, what kind of decisions do they make for things that matter in our lives that you ingest and that you have in your own body? And it's, it's, so they are idealists, but they're also informed idealists that have researched uh, the different ways to make this work on a slightly longer term uh, than just surviving the season. And right now, it's like it's a lot of what we live in our lives. We are all, even in our radio production, trying to survive the season. Uh, and it's like, but really, what is the big time? What is the big long-term picture? And how do you bring this back into the work that you're doing? Are, are they willing to open their books, like show all of the money part? They make uh, $20,000 a year. Is, that, is their goal to make $20,000 a year? Uh, and... Uh, you know, they don't know if they can do that. Um, and yeah, they're, they're willing to open their books and they're, they're really interested in that part, which is, it, it's a locked system. And if you want to make it right now as a farmer, you have to have a, a part-time job of some sort on the side. It's like, you know, you're, you're a band, you're touring and you can only make money selling t-shirts. Uh, this is the same with farmers. They're farming, but they have to find ways to make money that's other, maybe selling some seeds or maybe they are getting involved with farmer's markets, which is, doesn't work, like farmers cannot make money on farmer's market. And they're really willing and interested to talk about that. And just, just quickly, when you say their goal is to make $20,000, do they want to make more than 20 or they're just, do they actually want to make money? Um, so they want to make a living. And they've calculated that for them to be able to survive on the farm, they need to make $20,000. And right now for them, it seems like it may not be a reachable goal. And so, yes, they want to make more money than that, but uh, they're also being very realistic and they're very be being very pragmatic about it in terms of it's their life choices and they want to be on the farm, they want to be in a rural community, they want to be in that kind of like healthier for them environment. But so they're pragmatists uh, trying to go at it. So $20,000 is, uh, you know, the reality of what they're hoping. If they could make more, they'll be happier. Okay. Um what I will say is, is this is not an automatic accept because I, I feel like there is a sort of mission thing happening here where it feels a little preachy to me. I, I'm more interested in insights about the way agriculture really works, not like the dream of how agriculture could be. Hmm. But that being said, uh, if there were a way to rewrite this pitch uh, so I could take it to the group that focused on focused on this decision that's coming up, a decision where they might have to compromise their ideals about the future of, of agriculture and, and um, basically sell out in order to make money. And it's focused on the decision and we were able to like be there for this kind of debate and you know learn stuff along the way about, about agriculture and, and the way it's become. And, uh, and if the father is accessible and being like, just sell the cows, um, and there's some sort of tension there. But you can see what I'm looking for, which is um, if you want to write this up where, it's a where there's just heightened tension and it's, it's clear to me like a decision has to be made. Are they going to live their principles or are they going like, to make enough money to live? Um, that's, that feels focused enough that, uh, that I could bring it to the group. And that's definitely, yeah, that Great. is the story. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. Good job, Natasha. Thanks, Natasha.
All right, we are going to keep going. Another pitch to Robert Smith from Megan Cameron. Megan, step to the mic. Megan Cameron is a veteran journalist who spent 14 years as a business reporter and editor before branching into public television and radio. She hosts All Things Considered at KUNM in Albuquerque and is an independent Oops. producer. I just broke the mic. And she just broke the mic. Right. Um, Megan is pitching to Robert uh, for Planet Money. Go ahead, Megan. Okay. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. So right now we have the largest senior cohort ever. They're healthier, they're more capable, they're more experienced than previous generations. They're living longer, so they're reshaping the global population. That's because this demographic is growing, increasingly staying in the workforce longer. And many use technology, but a report from Pew found that a lot of older adults are not as confident about their ability to learn and use electronic devices. That can play into many existing tendencies we have right now in our society to not see these folks as assets and they're with decades of wisdom. And this casting aside can bring social isolation that can spark an array of very costly health issues and difficulties staying in the workplace or managing small businesses. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got socioeconomic and educational gaps growing with young people in the US. A study by Stanford found many young folks lacked kind of soft skills we talk about that they need, and they lack opportunities at home or school or in real life to practice them. So I wanted to explore how pairing these groups can bring benefits to both, and also the larger society and the economy. Um, there's a report by Stanford that explored how these two cohorts can help one another, and this intergenerational approach is happening in a lot of different ways right now around the country. There was a study last year by the Eisner Foundation and Generations United. So my idea is to explore this idea, um, one example at least, of how this could work um, by looking at this group in Albuquerque called Teen Years that was launched in 2015 by a Latina entrepreneur. It's a small business with a nonprofit arm. It matches tech-savvy teens with seniors who need help with their smartphones or their computers. The founder, Trish Lopez, had these own experiences with her mom <laughs> and just decided to pitch this at a startup weekend. Um, but what she found was that creating this actually helps the teens immensely. They're paid for this expertise. And the dual mission empowers both of them through a human connection. It helps the seniors become less isolated. They're more adept at tech. It fosters confidence and job skills in the teens. And really, both of these groups tend to be underestimated in our society, but in this model, the young people are respected for their knowledge and appreciated for their help, and working with seniors has helped them clarify their own career paths and overcome some of their own social anxiety or social isolation. They also learn skills like communication and patience and punctuality and things you're just you're supposed to know when you go out in the job world. Um, the seniors feel less isolated. They're able to learn new skills. They're engaged in society rather than cast aside. We would meet in terms of audio um, at least three small business owners. I've spoken with, I don't have audio of them, but um, they have found teen years invaluable. It helped them stay in business or maintain a new venture that one of them launched. We'll also meet several teen years who can talk about why this work has helped them on certain career paths. And also from experts like Stanford's Center on Longevity, Generations United, and I can go into some of the people, but I don't want it to keep it a concise. Pitch. You know I like concise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, just a few questions. Uh, how long has this been running? This uh, she launched in 2015. And how many people have gone through this or are, are in the program? Um, they have helped probably about between 500 and 1,000 folks total in New Mexico. Where they they have one-on-one, -on -one and they also have group sessions you can come to. Where do they get the money from? Um, they have a grant from Comcast, and um, they also do... It's, it's a, I mean, they charge, so it's a mix. It's kind of a hybrid. Yeah. So they have a nonprofit arm so they can take grants, but they charge for their services. And we have a number of low-income seniors in New Mexico, so that's why they have a nonprofit side that gets grant funding. Um, so I'm going to ask some uh, speculative questions. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why I'm doing it is, is because, because right, now, right now this doesn't feel like enough for a 20-minute episode. Mm -hmm. there, it's, it's a thing that exists, uh, and it seems well-meaning, and it seems mm -hmm. like they're doing a good job. Um, there's some, there's a little bit to explore why, but it feels more like a, a mm -hmm. like a four minute feature on mm -hmm. public radio. Like, Hey, you know, here's the problem. Mm -hmm. Here's a possible solution. Here's a little complication and here's how it might be a model for the rest of the country. That's essentially how you would do it. But in, in a podcast format or longer format, you just need complications. Things mm -hmm. have to get more complicated. Uh, so do these teens like ever steal from the old people? <laughs> um, like, come I, on. Like, I don't look, know. That look, might No one's going to hear this. No <laughs> okay. one's going to hear this. Did you hear any story like, oh, it works great. We've had 999 successful interactions except for Victor. <laughs> and you're just yeah. like, tell me more. Tell me about Victor. She, uh, she told me about one kid, and I talked to him briefly. I didn't delve into this. I'd have to see if he's okay talking about it. But she's like, He's never on time. It's like, I got to fire him. And he finally said, no, please don't do that. I'm dealing with severe depression. That's the only thing that gets me out of bed. I'm sorry. I know that's like a weepy story. You don't want to hear him. Play. Um, <laughs> and it's helped him work through some of those issues because of it. Anyway. Yeah, so. but that's, it, that's not... Uh, I know what that's you're That's not surprising enough, right? Yeah. Like, like, it needs, like, it needs the... It, it needs a, mm -hmm. a second and a third act to it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you yeah. know, like, like imagine where, like, they set this up and they're noble and everything, and then all of a sudden the kids start stealing from the stores or stealing from the old people because they don't notice, and, and, and all of a sudden they have to deal with that and they have to reform the program. Just making this up here. But, um, yeah. but, but you see what I mean in terms of it needs, to, it needs to progress as a story. Got it. And I will say, um, and once again, like, it's great that you're up here and doing this, and I wouldn't mention this except for the fact that I hear this in... 60% of the pitches we get. And that is a single word, which is explore. Ah, okay. And, and what I hear in a lot of pitches, pitches is like, I want to explore this. I want to explore that. Nothing wrong with exploring. But as a pitch, what that tells me is that there's not like a single through line. There isn't like a story story. It means that there's usually a place where a story might exist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so since we're doing this for the benefit of the room, if you find yourself using that word explore, it, it's, it's sort of become a symbol to me that you're still looking for a story story. You know, you're still just like you found a, a milieu, you found some people, but, but no, one, no one wants to hear like there's lots of different directions for this piece. What they want to hear is there's a, there's a single awesome direction and, and that's the story I'm going to tell today. But I appreciate you bringing it to me and if you... Uh, you know, you might, you might want to ask just for the help. I mean, I think, yeah. it, I think it makes a good feature, and you might want to ask, hey, 
you know, between you and me, mm-hmm. the radio I'm recording for, um, <laughs> you know, are there any, any disasters that happen along the way? Which, which actually, like, like for, for those of you doing, doing feature stories, like I ask this not just because like I'm, I'm a mean guy who wants to laugh at this program, uh, it ends up making stories like this much better, where there's a moment of crisis, there's a moment like, oh, did we do the wrong thing? Did, you know, mm-hmm. or have we ruined everything, <laughs> you know? Uh, have we taken advantage of, of older people with these teens or taken advantage of the teens? And that moment of crisis where something went wrong, where they can overcome it, it makes a feature story like this about, uh, especially about do-gooders, uh, better and more engaging. Mm-hmm. Okay, good feedback. Well, thanks. thanks, Robert. Megan. <laughs> Megan May, good. So next, we are going to move on to Catherine. Yes, um, pitching uh, for Catherine works with Neon Hum, as we know. And we're going to bring up Morgan Gibbons. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan. Step to the mic. Morgan Gibbons is a storyteller, writer, performer, and audio producer based in Washington, D.C., one of the top storytellers in D.C. He's performed for NPR's Invisibilia Live, The Moth. Um, he's been on the Story District's top shelf. He's a graduate from Transom. Um, an Air New Voices scholar. Hello. You're looking at it right here. Air New Voices. Um, and he currently works as a part-time producer for the talk show 1A. Um, and he is the creator of a podcast Read that sweatshirt, read that hoodie, it's Fly's Fables. Fables y'all. represented <laughs> with all of his merchandise as well. Um, Morgan is going to go ahead and pitch Neon Hum. All right, we're going to see what happens here. Uh, so my name is Morgan Givens. I am the creator of the Hope Punk fiction podcast, Fly's Fables. Uh, that, now, Hope Punk is a term coined by author Alexandra Rawlins, and it's not utopian, it's not dystopian, it exists at the crossroads where our most important life decisions are often made. And it understands that humans are complicated. We can be as evil as we can be kind, as good as we can be bad, but within all of us there is good and light, and that light is worth protecting and defending, and when you protect and defend that light, it expands and it grows. So I created Fly's Fables after I was unable to find a modern book of fables for my then two-year-old nephew. Because if the stories didn't exist, I wanted them to, because I do believe that black kids deserve to be the heroes of their own stories too. So I made them. And Flyest Fables is specifically made for these young black kids, and uh, the show's framework exists as a narrative within a narrative. The outside narrative is our modern world, and we follow a single protagonist who is struggling with a problem, one that is universal in quality, and they don't know how to solve this problem. But then they get their hands on a magical book. And this is the second device. Because while they read this book, they find the strength they need and learn how to solve their problem. And the world within the book is one of fantasy, music, and of people standing against a power they believe is stronger or bigger than they are. The outside narrator protagonist changes every two or three episodes, while the internal narrative is an ongoing interconnected anthology of stories. Now, while the show is for young black kids, I do have fans around the world um, in all demographics. And uh, one of the oldest fans I know of is a dude named Bob who lives in Alabama. He's this white dude who's a Vietnam vet, and I love Bob. He's great. Uh, (laughs) But I do want to play a clip from season two, episode one of Fias Fables. And in this clip, we are within the book, and a young girl named Imani, 
who lives in the icy kingdom of Araminta, is fleeing from city guards when she runs into a dead end with seemingly nowhere to go. And blocked by a thick wall of ice, uh, something then strange begins to happen. She had to shield her eyes as the flames did the unthinkable. The thing the appraisers had warned her people would be their end. They broke through the ice and kissed the sky, reached out towards her like the burning essence of home. They licked at her skin like a caress, and they did not burn her. She marveled at the way the flames danced over her skin and stared down the long, fiery pathway before her, a pathway so long she could not see its end, but she could hear a voice whispering to her from within the flames. It beckoned. It called. Should I run or should I go into the darkness unknown? I feel scared and alone, but even so, into the darkness I go. That's from Fias Fables, um, and uh, once Imani goes into the darkness, we come outside of the book, and we're back with the man who has the book. He's a man named Clarence, who is actually incarcerated uh, for a crime he did not commit. He happened to just be a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, thank you. So, Flyers Fables is already in the world. It is. So, I guess my first question is, are you pitching because you want to make further seasons, or are you thinking there's a way in which you could start over at season one with Neon Hum and, and pitch a a new and improved Fly's Fable? Talk me, talk me through that. Yeah, um, what I would love to do is go back through season one with editorial assistance and support because I had to do it all myself. And I know that it can be greatly improved with outside ears. There are things I don't hear. There are things with the story I can make co more cohesive. Um, and if I were able to do that and have that support in that time and that energy, to put into season one, I know something that's great could be fantastic. Uh, and then I could then go and redo season two, but because of the way, I understand y'all do limited stuff. So because of the way I've structured the show, every three episodes, three to four episodes can stand alone in its own arc, which means one season can stand alone in its own arc. And if one season was done and it was like, okay, cool, bet, we thank you for that season, <laughs> you know, I can then continue on my own. So I did structure the show in such a way that seasons can stand alone, episode arcs can stand alone, and you don't need multiple seasons to kind of get something out of the entirety. How many episodes per season? Uh, right now, I've... I only have one season out right now. I'm in the middle of season two. So I had eight episodes in season one. I did two bonus episodes in between seasons one and two. And I'm looking to have six to eight episodes for season two, uh, just depending on how my brain shakes out that final arc. Got it. And the first season, how, I mean, did you, what was a bit of your process on your own? I'm trying to figure out, like, if you did have an editor and someone trying to figure out the arc of the fictional podcast with you, how it would sort of change. So the first season, did you storyboard it? 
this is like, storyboard in my head. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, but I, I do, uh, because I do work for a show one day, I do understand how I have to be able to translate what's in my head to the page. Uh, and I have worked with friends in season one. I sent them episodes to listen to. I sent them stories to read over so they could tell me what wasn't clicking, what wasn't making sense. So I do have the experience in translating that idea. Um, but when I sat down and I thought about it, I want, first I thought about what's the purpose of this show? What's the meaning behind this show? And why am I making it? Because I felt if I didn't have all three of those things, it shouldn't exist. So, <laughs> so I think you answered some of those questions in sure. your pitch, like why you're making it because you wanted to make a show that other, for young black kids, including mm -hmm. your nephew. Yep. But let's answer the other two. What, the, other two? the other two questions were, Can you repeat them? I just forgot what they were. <laughs> <laughs> getting old. <laughs> How my process works? No, no, no. You just listed three questions, and they were good, and now I've, I've just forgotten them. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> you said the reason for this, the show to exist, oh, who the audience is. Mm -hmm. And there was one other, but maybe we'll remember that by the sure. time you finish So who's, audience. who's my audience? Yeah, like who... Who are the people that you feel like will have a natural <coughs> in with this show? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I have made it for young black kids and young black queer kids. But what I have found once the show has been out there and entered the world is people who are looking for a sense of hope and want to know that there is strength within them um, are the folks I've seen are drawn to that. I've been seeing a lot of millennials drawn to this show, a lot of G Generation Z folks. I've even had boomers who listen to this show. So I think I've hit that sweet spot of knowing who my audience is, but being able to tell stories in a way that other people can connect with them too. So my audience is young black kids. Uh, the show will always be for them, but it does have a universal quality that brings in other people. Mm. It's beautiful. <laughs> Um, so, so talk to me a little bit about the two narrative structures. So mm -hmm. there's the modern world and then the world that the people go into that's the kind of fictionalized sure. world. What are some of the issues you're dealing with in the modern world that, that you feel like, because I'm trying to figure out like hope, punk, and, yeah. <laughs> and also like the realism, because it sounds mm -hmm. like you are dealing with folks. It's magical big realism. Issues like, yep. Right, big issues like incarceration mm -hmm. and being wrongfully accused. Sure. So what's the blend of the two? <laughs> yeah, so um, my thing is like I, I, don't, I don't want to crush young people's spirits, right? But I want them to know that you can fight for the hope that you want to see in the world um, and that there is always change. So like in the first episode arc, we follow this young boy named Antoine who's being bullied in school uh, and he ends up getting the book and he reads this story about a princess named Keisha who goes on this magical quest to save her mother in the kingdom of Orleans. Um, and as Keisha is doubting herself and wondering if she has the strength to continue on, Antoine's doubting whether or not he has the strength to continue on because he's getting a little depressed. He's upset with these bullies and I don't go super dark, but I touch on like he's he's being bullied it hurts him his mom doesn't really understand what he's going through but he reads this book and the thing is as he finishes Keisha's story and I don't want to spoil her story because I love it but he has this moment where his bully at the end tries to mess with him again and he finds the strength to stand up for himself and he acknowledges to himself in the story I don't know if my saying something is going to matter if this kid is going to mess with me tomorrow but I said something today and the thing he says to the kid is I don't know who hurt you but it's not my fault I didn't do it 
And the, the bully is kind of struck like, huh. And like, it's for kids, you know? And so the bully takes that moment and Antoine leaves. But we don't know what happens to Antoine after he has that revelation because one of the key parts of the story is the book passes on to the person who needs it. And so Antoine has learned ah, his lesson. so that's the cliffhanger. Yeah, and so he passes the book on to a guy named Marcus who is a homeless vet who lives in the city who was one of Antoine's friends, his only friends. And he always packed Marcus a sandwich. And you hear a little snippet in like one of the first seasons where Antoine's mom is like, where's all my sandwich meat going? And Antoine is taking it to Marcus. So he passes the book on to Marcus, and then Marcus eventually passes the book on. So the book goes to who needs it. Yeah, so you're already starting to answer one of the questions I always have, which is how are you propelling the narrative forward? And always, how are you building in building in moments that are just going to keep the listener listening, yep. like must listen. I always feel like when I'm listening to a podcast, honestly, it's kind of sad, but at any moment I might turn it off. <laughs> it really is that pins and needles. Yeah. So I feel like we have to develop story arcs and turns that keep people gripped yeah. or we'll lose them. But it sounds like you're thinking that way. I've, I've been trying. I've had feedback from friends um, throughout the first season. I wasn't really hitting those cliffhangers hard. And it's somebody I trust. And she was like, hey, you know what might be cool is if you found a way to end each section of the story in a way that I wanted to keep coming back. Instead of, and so instead of having solid resolutions in the, for episodes one and two, I gave you a bit of a revolution, but mm -hmm. I, I, I left you in suspense. You know, mm -hmm. just, just enough for you to be like, dang, what's happening next week? You Right. So, yeah. so Catherine, so, sorry, oh, go we're gonna have to keep moving. Do you, do you think this is something that you'd be able to? I think we should talk. Out? Yeah, okay. we should talk further. We want to keep it going and um, and you know not give away all the plots that Morgan has planned. So, um, but. Um, you guys should definitely be in touch. It sounds like a, it could be a possibility for Neon Home. We're going to keep going, though, um, with uh, Sarah Robertson. Sarah? Step to the mic, Sarah. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is an Austin native. Um, she is a Transcend Story Workshop alumna and the co-founder of the Tumble, Com Tumble Podcast, right? Um, she also is currently developing a podcast for the University of Texas, where she works as a senior producer and managing editor. And uh, Sarah is going to be pitching Catherine again. Yeah. Um, just a little bit. This is a little different and a little trigger warning. I'm pitching a true uh, crime podcast. It was almost midnight on December 6, 1991, in the then sleepy college town of Austin, Texas. Smoke started pouring from a strip mall frozen yogurt shop. Flashlights of first responders fell on something unexpected. The bodies of four teenage girls, bound, shot once in the back of the head, and stacked one on top of the other. Nothing like this has ever happened in Austin before, and honestly, nothing like this has ever happened since, and they were unprepared. The cops on the case had never worked a multiple murder. Police looked into cartel members and serial killers and pulled in every goth kid from the city. The case was so public, they had hundreds of false leads. And after eight years, empty-handed, new detectives were brought in. The community by this point was exhausted and upset. And under political pressure to put the case to rest, they charged four local boys, two of whom were sentenced, one to death row. The story has been told of four sweet girls and four bad boys and a gruesome murder in the most unlikely of places, a frozen yogurt shop. The yogurt shop murders have been a high-profile case for almost 30 years, and it's easy to see why. But we believe there's more to this story than what has been covered before. 
I only first heard the full details of this case a few months ago from my friend Kate. We both grew up in Austin, but she's about 15 years older than me. Actually, she used to babysit me. Kate grew up in the same part of town as the yogurt shop. She used to eat there after weekend soccer games. She's only three to four years older than the girls who were murdered. And she told me this case and the botched investigation drove her to become a true crime reporter. The thing that is that drives me forward in looking at it is that every single time I think I understand what happened with the case, I didn't. And so I go in to read another article or another piece or watch, you know, 48 hours, cover it on TV, and I discover that I just come out with more questions. Kate says when the boys were convicted, the whole city breathed a sigh of relief. The case was closed, but was it solved? There was no physical evidence of any kind and tying the boys to the murder, and their, co- their confessions were coerced. The case even went before the U.S. Supreme Court. After a decade behind bars, the two convictions were overturned, and as part of the appeal, DNA from the crime scene was tested, and it didn't match the two convicted, but pointed to an unknown man. So who killed Jennifer, Eliza, Sarah, and Amy? Others have spent a single episode rehashing the best-known details, but ours will be the first multi-episode documentary treatment featuring new reporting. We believe the 30th anniversary coming up in December 2021 is the right time to revisit this story. The podcast will follow Kate as she unpacks this crime in chapters, interviewing the friends and family of those impacted, local reporters, law enforcement, and lawyers, many of whom have already agreed to speak with us. We also have access to police radio calls, confession tapes, and archival TV. We want to capture the culture and sounds of Austin in the 90s, a pivotal time in its history. We envision this as a limited season, 8 to 12 episodes, beginning with the full lives of these teenagers. Then we'll cover the day of the crime, the murder, the botched investigation, the multiple trials, and look into why this case still sits cold. There's convincing evidence that the most likely suspects were overlooked. The police have a full Y DNA profile, but are refusing to test it. We believe familial DNA analysis could be used to track down this unknown killer. This could be the first breakout podcast from Austin, an area where we haven't heard a lot of voices. And there's a richer story to be told here about a rapidly growing city and a story it doesn't want to tell about itself. Wow. So Mike can take you and you're three seconds under. Talk about Um, So a couple of questions. Sure, of course. Um, What kind of access do you have to the bad boys? Sure. And what kind of access do you have to the good girls, either lawyers or family members? Because it seems like we got access to a lot of people, but I I didn't hear those two. Absolutely. So um, we have one of the boys who's convicted, the one to death row, Robert Springsteen, has agreed to speak with us, as well as his lawyer, um, his team of lawyers who have an alternative theory to this crime. um, And that's a whole other thing. Um, It's one of the reasons why we think it needs multiple episodes, not just one. Um, As far as the girls, it's a little touchier there, to be honest, the families are a bit exhausted over this amount of time. But one of the things um, that Kate brings to this story is although she is from that neighborhood, she's not directly connected to them. She has friends of friends who are. Um, So, you know, teachers of the girls, um, 
friends of the girls, things like that. And we hope that, you know, with the right support, we can convince their families to also talk to us. But that's been a little more touchy. We want to approach that gently. Yeah. Um, talk to me about Kate. Maybe you yeah. gave me more depth on her, but yeah. she's from the neighborhood where the murders occur. Yes. But what makes her the right host for this story? Yeah. So Kate is, um, she's from that neighborhood. She is a little bit older. When she left to go to journalism school, um, this is when this happened. And she became obsessed with this case and it's really gnawed at her for the last 30 years. She came to me actually because she was thinking about writing about it and was like, you know, I really just don't know if writing is the right medium for this. And she was telling me about all she had and she told me about the tape. Um, and I said, you know, I think this is a podcast. Let's try it. Um, so I think she had she, already, sorry to, to interrupt. She had already been recording? Reporting, not oh. recording. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah, we I have. excited. Tape. Yeah, yes. No, I, I, well, there is tape, actually, archival tape. So something that's really interesting and makes this case a little distinct is the night of the murder, um, the cop that ended up being the detective was doing a ride along with a CBS reporter when it got called in. So from the very second that this murder was discovered, the press was all over it. So there's a lot of TV tape of the call coming in, of the sirens, of people coming to the scene. Um, and it was just, I mean, nonstop on local TV for years and years and years and years. Um, this was just what happened in Austin's nightly news. So um, there's a lot of historic tape to go through. So when I think about true crime, I think it's both um, the boon uh, that is driving a lot of podcasting, yeah. but it's also the bane. And I guess I just have to be frank that when it comes to true crime stories, I need something that is just new about it. Sure. Right? So what drew me to, like, the clearing was that it wasn't just a story about a serial killer. It was, like, the daughter going this journey of, of the trauma of having her father having killed those people. Yeah. And trying to reconcile her feelings and reconcile with actual people her father hurt. So if you had to kind of tell me what was the surprising thing of, I know, it's brutal, it's so hard. It's uh, a hard one. <laughs> the surprising thing that makes this true crime podcast different than other stuff, what would that be? And I'll, I mean, I'll give you a second, because I do feel like you're, you're setting it up in such a way that's enticing me, but the problem with true crime is that I feel like for whatever reason, it just draws interest for like really creepy people who are into murder, right? Sure, sure. Um, so I feel like sure. I have to like stop my instincts as a listener, being like, tell me more, right? Yeah. Um, and just remember my job as like an editor and like really if we were going to structure this thing, what would be the turns? What would be the surprise? And like from the beginning, right? Absolutely. So that first episode... I truthfully believe as an editor, the first episode is the whole ball game. If you don't get them, and if you don't get them good and set up the whole rest of the season and give them something new and surprising then, all is lost. Yeah. So give me a sense of what is the extra. Sure. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think <laughs> basically, and I, I wish I had a golden bullet answer and I've been trying to come up with it, so I'll give you what I have. Um, you know, I am not a super true crime person. Uh, to be honest, this is not normally my beat. I'm a science and tech reporter, um, but I am an Austinite. And I think when I was hearing this story from Kate, I was just really shocked because this is a story the city doesn't talk about itself anymore. And so I think there's an element there of why are these cases sitting cold. Um, there's other, right now, very 
interesting cases, um, not directly connected to this, but I think it is a larger trend in Austin right now of DA cases, not uh, particularly when they have to do with violence against women not being tested. I think this falls into that and predates it quite significantly. And I think there's something to be told there about two local women investigating why this is just sort of sat in the media circus that it was and never went anywhere. So that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know... And you t- did say something really interesting. Uh, why won't the cops test the DNA? And this is a story that Austin doesn't want to be told. So, like, now I'm imagining yeah. it's not just, you know, um, that that there's just not money to test, uh, you know, some of the DNA yeah. or that there's not um, a will to do it, right. but that there's a will against it. Like, I feel like that would be a deep complication if you do have that complication yeah. because that's not usually... I mean, the that case. would be a complication I'd be really interested Yeah, in. and I think before saying definitively that they're like, we don't want to test this DNA, we'd have to do the reporting to back that up. But I think there's surprise that it's there and they're not they're not doing that and we want to kind of push the buttons a little bit more to find out why. Um, I think it brings up a lot of timely things. I mean, part of the case is, um, that was also surprising to me, is the police corruption and the coerced confessions were just so commonplace at the time. The only evidence in the entire case are the com- the coerced confessions of the two boys, and the- that was the evidence used against each other, and that's why eventually it was overturned um, by the Supreme Court. So uh, I feel like that is something I've heard, right? Okay. 13 alibis did that. Right. Like, We've got that before. Yeah. But if you really can be telling me a story about a city that doesn't want this this case that was heavily publicized from the get-go, yeah. right? If there's something there or if there's something that your reporting can uncover about, um, you were also saying like two women trying to figure out the case of, of why uh, violence against women gets put on the back burner. Yeah. Then I feel like we're getting somewhere. I'm yeah. like, ooh, tell me more. Yeah, but not so, just for my listener. Like, I need yeah. to hear this, but my editor brain too. Totally. And so sorry, we're no, gonna we're have done. to move on. Yeah. So Catherine, what do you think? Is this Let's something talk. that you I mean, would I think consider? there's some sharpening that needs to be done, but yeah. that's the case with all development of podcasts. And I definitely think it is not eight to twelve episodes. Okay. I'm thinking six. Okay. okay. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're moving on to WHYY. Mike and Scott is the editor um, who's going to be receiving a pitch from Raymond Christian. Raymond, step to the mic. Ray is a retired Army paratrooper, combat veteran, and doctor of education. His stories appeared in Reader's Digest, uh, 2016 Best Stories in America, and um, his stories have also been featured in Snap Judgment, The Moth, Backstory Radio, and Spooked. Um, he is the host and producer of the podcast, What's Ray Saying? What's Ray Saying? Oh, this is what I'm about to say now. Uh, in theory, and by general policy, the U.S. military only accepts perfect physical specimens. And as a result of that, If you leave the military less than 100%, there's a sort of of, uh, reparations that they pay. Say um, 10% for a scar, uh, 30% for a lost hand, maybe uh, 75% for a leg or something like that. But the system was set up during the Great Wars when they didn't really take into account things that they call shell shock, battle fatigue, or what we call PTSD now. 
So they didn't set into place an infrastructure to deal with all these people that would come back with these non-physical wounds that you could see. So the system is already overwhelmed. And because every veteran who has an option, they do not go to the VA hospital. The people who mainly go to the VA hospital is the homeless population, uh, people suffering from drug addictions or mental illnesses, or they get transferred to the VA hospital from other medical institutions when they lack uh, medical care altogether. The thing that happens when you get to the VA hospitals is a lot of these medical conditions, according to the veteran and their families, creates their own problems. Their mental health problems are created by the VA system. If you did a quick Google search, you could find hundreds of articles where every year there's a veteran who shows up at a VA hospital threatening to kill people or threatening to commit suicide or who has committed suicide. The Veterans Administration has a database of all the appellate cases and often veterans claim in their appeals cases that the VA caused their PTSD or increased their PTSD. Some of these cases are won, some of them are lost. Um, what this story plans to do is uh, follow a single vet, uh, one primary character, kind of recapping their military service and then diving into the reached details of their post-military life, particularly their interactions with the VA uh, in an attempt to, to gain adequate care. Uh, then this veteran story would be augmented by uh, interviews with an expert on PTSD and people at the Veterans Administration who interact with veterans on a daily basis. Uh, what makes this story unique is uh, I'm a combat veteran myself. I'm a disabled veteran. I have vast access to networks of veterans who are fully capable of speaking, want to speak, good speakers, good talkers, and people who've got verifiable military records. Um, and it's different from a typical uh, veteran story because uh, I'm interviewing it from the inside. I speak the language of veterans. I speak the language of uh, the Veterans Administration. Um, I have the academic background to to make sense of this material. Um, why does it even matter? I think uh, medical and public health history teaches us that certain medical practices actually create problems, like uh, germ theory teaches us that uh, we know that certain practices in the hospital create superbugs and super infections. That's my story. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. Thank you. Thank you. I hired a veteran last year, Maureen, so he could be your editor. <laughs> so I want to ask you a couple of, of questions. How would you bring the VA into this conversation? Because I do feel they are the other side of this conversation, right? So how are they part of this story? I think that the story about how the VA is involved from the top up, the administrative system, is pretty well known and well done about their policies. But what I'm trying to bring into it is the VA, people who work at the VA who interact with veterans on an everyday level, probably where the rubber meets the road. Um, I'm not looking at it on a micro level. I'm trying to make it small, an individual, more of a personal story. Uh, and do you get a sense that the people who work at the VA are also frustrated by yes, the system? Yes, I, you know, anecdotally, I've, I've I've heard these conversations. They share the same frustrations as many of the veterans do, but there's nothing they can do about it. These are people who are in positions of power but have no power to do anything. I like, I like pulling on the thread of sort of the system creating further complications, right? Because I feel like we've done a lot of reporting on PTSD and on treatments for PTSD and so on, but I do think it would be really interesting 
acting to follow the lead of the system itself is making people sick. Is that what you're right, telling Right, that's me? what I'm saying. Right, and sort of the claims that don't go through and then you have to file it again, that type of, of issue, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, so I do think if you, if you were to have a good case study with a veteran who has had those kinds of frustrations of having their diagnosis recognized, and then also have somebody in the VA. I've done a lot of reporting in the VA, and I find often they actually have quite good treatment models, and they often do very cutting-edge treatment, especially in the field of mental health, which isn't exactly great elsewhere either. You know, so... I would want to be careful and like also highlighting some of those efforts, but obviously there's a problem in the delivery of care, right? Right, but the major problem is uh, you may have that condition, but it may not be service connected. Mm -hmm. And that is that little administrative part that make, that blows the whole thing up. Oftentimes families will show up with uh, grandpa who's a World War II hero. They have the pictures and they have granddaddy's stories. The VA does a military background check, your granddaddy never served in World War II. He, you know, he was an administrative clerk. He never left. But my grandfather, my daddy, look at these pictures. You people are crazy. It's a messed up system. I watch people like that snap on VA personnel because mm -hmm. they don't know. Because by the time their relative actually gets to the VA, they, all they have is stories. They have nothing to verify anything. Mm -hmm. And who would you see as your main character on the on the veteran level? Because I know about a dozen people that fall into that category. There are a couple of them who are really good talkers, and they have went through the whole system, and they can articulate that. So I have a couple of people in mind who can speak well, and they have a long history. They can be supported by people in their families who've mm -hmm. seen their behavior, who can back that up by mm -hmm. things like that. And was there one thing that they told you that was the most frustrating out of the laundry list of frustrations? Like, what was the thing that could drive somebody to say, I'm going to kill one of you people today? I can give you an example of something mm -hmm. I've seen. Uh, the VA can make appointments for you without asking you. You don't, you don't have a choice. So you get a letter in the mail that says, you have an appointment on the 20th at 2 o'clock. I can't make it on the 20th at 2 o'clock. If you don't make this appointment, then we're going to claim you're a no-show and you can't come back again. If you show up at the VA and you have an appointment for 8 o'clock in the morning, you may not be seen until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. If you leave the hospital because you can't wait anymore, they'll punish you by not allowing you to have an appointment the next time. Now, I've seen that happen and people lose it. Mm -hmm. and go back to their cars and get their guns and threaten to kill people. And it happens so often that every VA hospital has a protocol in place for the threatening vet. You can't, even, you can't raise your voice to anybody to be in hospital. They're going to call the police. You, know, you can't curse them out on the phone. They'll... I think this is the part where I'm like completely latching on to your story. right? I mean, not that I wasn't before, but I think this is, this is the part where the story would begin for me is is this sort of the machine of the bureaucracy that you are thrown into and you have to go and you have to get the appointment, but it doesn't respond to you, right? Right. Because I think every healthcare consumer can relate to that, to that frustration when we wait like an hour and a half at the doctors and we're like, oh, it's terrible. But this is like next level, right? So I oh, think people yeah. could like be dumped into that story right at that moment. So I'm... We're at five, so I'm going to cut this off. But I'm very interested in this, and I want to thank you for bringing the story, and we should talk. Yeah, yeah.
Wonderful. Um, we have one last pitch, right? One last pitch. Yes. Um, we are going to be hearing from Mimi Hayes. Mimi is a New York City-based author, comedian, and podcaster. Her book, I'll Be Okay, It's Just a Hole in My Head, came out last year, as well as her neuroscience comedy podcast, Mimi and the Brain. Mimi is pitching Mike in. Hello, I'm Mimi Hayes, and for the entire month of August, I walked around Scotland wearing a giant brain costume. Let me explain. In 2014, I had a brain aneurysm five days into my very first career as a high school teacher. I was 22 years old, and I was on a blind date when I got a headache. And sadly, no, he did not get a second date. Today, I'm a stand-up comedian, author, podcaster, and playwright of a one-woman show that I took to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. To promote my show, I have my flyer there for you. I wore a giant foam brain costume that my dad made me for Halloween five years ago. Diagnosing my hemorrhage was no easy task. I was misdiagnosed three times, presenting stroke-like symptoms, double vision, nausea, clumsiness. I was told by my doctor that I was just depressed and hung up over a bad breakup from a guy that I dated for about five years that had just happened a few months prior. Basically, my prognosis was millennial. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but eventually, it was caught, and I had a brain surgery to remove the massive blood inside my brain. When I was recovering, everyone in the hospital was basically 50 years older than me. My best friend in rehab was this 87-year-old man named Robin. I think you know him. Uh, meanwhile, all my friends my age were off getting married, going to grad school, and starting their adult lives. But the first person that I met who was born in the same century as me, who had a brain injury, was this guy named Joe. I say he was the first person I met, but I met him on Instagram, because I live in New York and Joe lives in LA. Joe had a stroke in 2016. After brain surgery, Joe meandered out of his hospital bed, confused, into the lobby. A guard asked him to leave. He had his hospital bracelets on. Joe walked all the way out of the hospital into the streets of LA. It's hard to imagine they would have done the same thing with an elderly, frail person. Joe was found hours later. And this is why Joe now has an emotional support animal, because Joe has PTSD. By the way, he's not a veteran. When I heard Joe's story, I was disgusted. I wanted to know, how many more of us were there out there? Young survivors who were not being taken seriously. According to a study by the American Heart Association, were not even included in the graphs. This data is only collected for people over 45 in some cases, and I kept coming across this trend. Another study said risk factors double for every successive decade after the age of 55. I was 22, Joe was 39. Where are our statistics? I think about Scotland and being in that giant brain costume. Um, while I got a lot of weird looks, fair enough, uh, I also started a lot of conversations with survivors of brain aneurysms, strokes, concussions, and these were not old people either. As a society, we do not trust young people. When it comes to our health, apparently we are never ill. Misdiagnosis, mishandling in the hospitals, we are being gaslit out of our own life-threatening brain injuries. And many of our injuries you don't even know about because the impacts they leave on our young lives are often invisible. You would never know that five years ago, I was sitting in my hospital room, popping wheelies in my wheelchair with a patch on my eye because I couldn't see. Dangerous? Absolutely. 
This is a story about the young people tragically falling through the cracks of the medical institutions. This is a story about ageism, disability, and what it really means to navigate the world as a young person after a brain injury. To tell the story, I'm going to put on my reporter hat, and maybe my brain costume, and have conversations with young survivors like me. I will talk to doctors, neurosurgeons, and psychologists about the real data. I want to break the stigma. Stroke isn't just for old farts. No offense, Robin. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, this seems big right now. I mean, I know it's, it's a focused group, but I'm sort of, there's a lot there, right? There's your own story. Is your own story part of this? Do you see it as part of it, or is it more Joe's story, or is it more somebody else's story, or do you come to us as an informed narrator? Um, I think the last part, you know, I do have a separate podcast where I go more into it. I've got a book. I, I've done, I'm doing that, um, but I really would want to focus on the survivors themselves, the people who are not getting this attention, um, people whose stories haven't been told, mm -hmm. um, who aren't even being recognized in the hospitals as having these issues. How big of a problem is this, or do we have absolutely no idea because the statistics are lacking? I don't think people realize. I personally know a lot of young people um, because I'm part of a lot of Facebook groups that are like 50 and under, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I'm meeting one this weekend in Chicago who I'd never met before. You know, people that are um, young and are experiencing this and they're not being included in the data. Um, and still you're going to see people that are going to discount that because the statistics have previously shown that it's only older people that are having these issues. So we have no statistics on on this issue in younger people? Or There are some, but they're just not being publicized, and we're not okay. really paying attention to that in medical practice. I think we have to find the question that you want to ask. Is the question basically, what the hell, why are you being assholes? Or is the question to the doctors? Or is the question... Why is there no data? Or should there be more data? So I think we have to hone in on like what exactly is our question. Yeah, I think it's why isn't it being taken seriously? Um, why aren't young people being treated the same way as an older person coming in with these same exact symptoms as an older person would? You would never kick an old person out of a hospital who's wearing hospital bracelets and in their mm -hmm. hospital gear just out of brain surgery. You wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the ageism is, is rampant. And I want to um, not discover. <laughs> It's just a story I'm already telling. But um, you know, I want to look more into that. Mm -hmm. But it is probably more. Is it more likely for an older person to have a stroke? Yes or no? It probably is, right? Yeah, but you'd be surprised. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's because we're just not talking about the the yeah. people. I just think I think we have to think about the question and and be very focused in terms of like what is the question you want to ask. And to me, the question is more. Is there better data and are doctors perhaps not aware of the data? Like when you talk to doctors, they'll always tell you, they sort of have the saying, like when you hear hoofs, is it a horse or is it a zebra? Like if you're in North America, it's probably a horse, right? And so they are always taught to look for the thing that is the most common because that's, that's what they need to do. They're like, yeah, probably you don't have this one thing that one in a million people have. You probably have a headache. Right. So I do think we also have to 
we would have to hear the perspective of a doctor mm -hmm. because, you know, when I was that age, I constantly had a headache and I constantly thought I was having a stroke because I'm mm -hmm. anxious. So I'm like, always Maybe like, you did. Oh. I don't know. Not to scare you. <laughs> I have ALS or I have this or I have that. Who knows? You know, so I'm thinking like a lot of doctors see people like me in my 20s who are really annoying. Right. So I would want to hear that perspective, too where they constantly find themselves having to reassure people like, no, you're not dying, you're okay, okay? So I, I would want to hear that voice as well and have some compassion for that voice also. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, what you would no, do No, it's totally horrible, fair, yeah. But I think there is another side. So I think this is, this is a very, it's an interesting idea. I always like when people have access, was my word in the beginning, right? And I think both of you have access to a, a group of people that has a very unique experience that other people don't have access to. I also think there's always something interesting when you're young and you have a condition or an experience that nobody associates with your age. And that puts you sort of separate from your own age group. So I definitely think that would be a good thread to pull on. But I do think we would have to define the big question that we want to ask. And to me, the question is more, is there data that doctors aren't aware of? And or is that data not kept? Or what do we even know about this? So that would be our next step in, mm -hmm. in discussions is to figure out that question. Okay. Does Thank that you. make sense? Yeah. Do you have a question for me? <laughs> uh, no, it just, it's exciting to meet you because I've heard your voice before, so. <laughs> yeah. Thank, you. Thank you so much, but it's a great, it's a great idea. Wonderful. We're just about to, we're just about to wrap up, but I did want to, um, first of all, a huge round of applause for these pictures. Right? It takes, it takes a lot to get up here and, you know, present an, mm. an idea that actually becomes a story that you actually might have the, uh, the ability to have it on the air. And so congratulations to all you guys. It was really great. Um, but I did want to ask, just going down the line, um, like, what do you think is the biggest mistake that people make when they're pitching, like Planet Money, for example? Well, um, there, there are the obvious things about, like, you know, um, thinking about an actual story, a character, and somebody doing something with something at stake. That's the, the normal narrative thing. But what I think, and this goes with my, my brevity comment, is that a lot of people send us pitches where I'm sort of in for the first few paragraphs, and they almost talk talk me out of it. Mm. Um, and I understand, I understand what's happening here because people, obviously, I want them to do research. I want them to know a lot of things about the thing they're pitching. But um, I also want to have questions and be able to picture the best possible piece. And also, I'm thinking forward to the point at which we're going to do an edit where I'm going to want to help focus this piece. And so I want to see a focused thought in the pitch. So that's what I say that, you know, if you have a great story, if you could tell it in, in, in half a page if you're sending a, a printed script, and sort of know what question I'm going to ask next and have an answer to it. Like, that's the best possible thing where I read it. I'm like, hey, this is pretty, this is pretty interesting. This is surprising. I have a few questions. And you're like, bring them on. Mm -hmm. I have all this research I didn't put in there. And you answer the questions and the story gets better. Like, that's the, that is the ideal thing right. for us. And Mike, and I was just curious because you get a lot of 
pitches constantly. I want to say, everyone on this panel I have invited because I know they are, are amazing mentors and really help usher people getting their stories through. Um, when I was up and coming, I had one of my first stories on WHYY, which is amazing. But um, I noticed that you asked specifically, like, who is in your story? Do you know who exactly you're going to be talking to? Do you think when people pitch you that they should know and have that information in there? I think they should have a sense. You mm -hmm. don't always, you know, I don't, it's hard for people to give you a pitch and they've done all the research and then you say, meh, you know, so I understand there's a push and pull, but I want you to have an idea what kind of person do you want to talk to and do you think you could get that person that that's all and then we can talk more and you can tell me oh now I have a character and then we can go forward so I understand it's hard for people to do work that's not been commissioned on their own dime but I think they have to have a sense and then if we have something that we're working on then go ahead and find the character for sure right and then I, I a question for Catherine um I was just curious because a lot of times producers they'll create something before they pitch it. Do you, do you recommend that someone would go out and make the thing, or do you think it's better to pitch it as a sort of present a, a written pitch to you before they actually present some audio of something they've actually created? Uh, I think there's a give and take there, but I do think people don't realize how much work goes into developing a limited run podcast. And if you are trying, I think that even just creating a deck is a little bit closer to creating like a book proposal. Mm -hmm. So there's like, I know Robert is a fan of brevity, but if you're trying to pitch me on a whole limited run series, then I want to know not only how many episodes, but where would the turns be? Where, what is going to be in that first episode that's going to make it set up the rest of the season? What's going to make it unforgettable, right? then I keep getting back to this thing. If, it's got to be surprising, right? We have Jason Moon in the audience who made um, Fairbrook, true crime podcast. But was it true crime or was it about a lot of other things that kept me going breathlessly from episode to episode? So I feel like there's a ton of work that goes into making a podcast pitch for like a, a limited run series for eight episodes. And that shouldn't daunt you. That should just mean that you definitely have to have characters. You definitely need to know what kind of tape you want to get. And you have to put a ton of thought into it. But I do think that, um, so along the way, you might be gathering tape. And that's always exciting when you come with a very well thought out pitch. But you're also like, I've been dragging this guy for three years. I've been having this character do audio memos in his bathroom the night that this happened. Oh, and then I was there the day that this person's dad disowned him. I mean, look, have you got that and you have a structure and a good thought for how you want these six to eight episodes to unfold? I'm not gonna say I'm sad you, you got your mic out, right? <laughs> um, but I also think you have to think a lot about who your host is, because a host has to be someone you want to go on that journey with. I edited This Land for Crooked Media, and Rebecca Nagel was, well, is, a um, Cherokee woman. And I think the best episode was episode four because it really took her history, her own personal history, and interwove it into the larger story we were telling about a Supreme Court case that was coming up. And it just was beautiful because Rebecca is the descendant of the people mm -hmm. who, who did this uh, 
I don't want to give it away, but anyway, who were part of this <laughs> one historical event, and she grew up thinking that her, her um, relatives were heroes. And it turns out a lot of Cherokee people sort of think they were traitors. It's like, I'm sorry, what? Right? Like, I was so gripped by that. I feel like the host in that case kind of made you want to go on the journey because this was personal. This was not ancient history. This was not like Native American people from long ago. She was like a living embodiment of the fact that we often think Native people, oh, that was back then, right? Um, she's here. She's, she's leading the podcast. So I think giving a lot of thought to who the host is is super important too. Mike, can you add something? I just wanted to add something I meant to say earlier, which is when I when I get a pitch, I I like it when people include another perspective. I asked both of you about that, right? What is this like for the person on the other side? So we know the outrage or the anger or the wrongdoing on one side, but then what is the other side? Who is on the other side? And what might they think about this, right? So I like when people have done the thought work of... of looking at at the opposing parties, but knowing what each side might say. I think that makes a, a pitch, there's tension in the pitch, and it makes it more three-dimensional to me yeah, as, a, right. as a receiver. I mean, nice. there's a little bit of what you were saying in the sense that you want complication. You want a story, but then it to get tweaked in a certain way and have you think differently about it. I mean, that's a little bit of what I'm talking about when I say I want something to be surprising. I want the first thing to be surprising, but then there to be a twist or a different perspective mm -hmm. that deepens that. And right. you, can see, you can see how it's different for, for each show and for right. each length, and the amount of complications you need are a lot more yes. than, <laughs> than what we need. And we're the experts in, in that part. We want to see you able to think through that and to show us some of those things. But um, don't feel like, you know, you know, that you're doing all of this work for a six-part series and you're pitching it to us, too. Like, we would just look at the page after page. It's better to, you know, the single idea, I think, can work for a lot of different shows and then you can expand it or contract oh, it. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. We are at time. Yes, we are. Um, I wanted to, uh, before we wrap up, just thank AIR again for hosting this panel, Association for Independence in Radio. AIR is an incredible resource for all of you to go on and see um, job openings and how to pitch places and to, it's just, it's just an amazing resource. I also really want to thank Jeanette Woods who helped um, the pitchers Yay. edit Yay. these stories. Yay. Yes. Um, and thank our panelists here who are um, here for, to help you guys answer any questions. Come up, say hello. Enjoy the conference, and we're doing this again tomorrow. So come hang out yeah. tomorrow.